Uprising podcast family and welcome to another episode. If you are fresh and new to Reggae Uprising podcast, it is all about connecting the African diaspora through wisdom, overstanding, inspirational stories, all backed by a soundtrack of sweet reggae music. So each and every Wednesday, we feature a new guest that shares their journey, their experiences, their wisdom, and of course, their seven reggae selections. So not only are we bringing you high vibrations each and every Wednesday, we want you to network and show your support to all of the guests featured. So if you want to reach out of them, we always feature their contact information. So if you'd like to collaborate, you'd like to show your support, you have some new ventures you think they could get involved with and you want to unite your skills and your wisdom with them, please, please, please do get in touch via all of the links that we leave in the episodes. Also, if you would like to get in touch with me, all you need to do is go to daniel.co.uk, click on the contact page and send me a message. It might be that you want to feature in a future episode or you might want to also collaborate with me as not only am I the host of Reggae Uprising podcast, I am also a singer-songwriter of conscious reggae soul music all of which you can find the music videos, my latest performances, uh, music releases, all of those you can find via daniel.co.uk, which is D-A-N-I-E-A-L.co.uk. And that link is also in the description for you to click on as well. So not only can you find all of my musical works there, you can also find all of the Reggae Uprising podcast episodes. So if you missed out on any, because we have plenty of high vibes, if you are fresh and new, enough, enough, enough episodes you've missed out on. Uh, and we also have special editions we featured throughout this year and last year. So if you want to check out any of those, like I said, they are all available by daniel.co.uk. Also, before we get started, please, wherever you're listening to Reggae Uprising podcast, please subscribe so that you are the first to hear these episodes. And if you feel the vibrations, if you if they're really resonating with you, please share within your own network. So these works can unify us together and uplift our community. So it's about time we got started with today's guest first selection, which is Bob Marley, Mellow Mood. I'll play your favorite song, darling. We can rock it all night long, darling. Cause I've got Rock 
guest has not only had careers in journalism and public relations, he is also an award-winning writer and the first arable black farmer in the UK. I would like to welcome David Mwanaka. Greetings and welcome. Thank you very much for having me on the show. You are more than welcome, brother. Now, we have just heard your first selection, which is Bob Marley's Mellow Mood. Can you tell us the reason for this selection? Yeah, well, all my songs really are by Bob Marley. I would say he was the best. There's no one I can actually say um, has inspired me like Bob did. So I would say... Songs like Mellow Mood, Three Little Bears, No Man, No Cry, these, the mellow songs by Bob Marley to me, they really touch my heart. And uh, at the same time, I've been to his house in Kingston and had the opportunity to be um, taken around the house and to see where some where he, he, he performed some songs or where he wrote some songs. So to me, it's not just that particular song, but all his songs. Yes, I've never had a guest that just picked one artist. So you, it's a first right now on Reggae Uprising podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, in that case, you've got one strange person. <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. I'm sure our listeners don't think you're strange for picking all Bob Marley songs at all. No, no, no. <laughs> Now, as I ask all of my guests that feature on Reggae Uprising podcast, can you tell us about your heritage as this show is all about connecting people of the African diaspora? Yeah, well, um, I was born in Zimbabwe. That's where I grew up. And I came over to the UK at the age of 26. And um, in Zimbabwe, I worked as a journalist. I was a writer there. I won a few awards in playwriting. Until I came to, over to the UK, and uh, like most um, foreigners in this country or people who are born abroad, you come to the UK and you have got this dream: I'm going to get a job, I'm going to get a good job, I'll continue working as a journalist, or maybe I'll end up in a different environment altogether, but it's still something not worse than what you are doing in your country. Came over to the UK, did all sorts of jobs. To be honest with you, I worked as a traffic warden. The most hated people in the country, I would say. I worked in um, factories everywhere, did all sorts of things. Until I came to a point of saying, I'm tired of formal employment. I just want to do something on my own. And uh, well, basically, that is my short history of how I became a farmer. But there were lots of other reasons why I ended up working as a farmer. Why I ended up as a farmer in this country. We will definitely get onto that a little bit later on, but I just want to kind of start at the very beginning with you. And do you know a lot about your family history? I do. Actually, what I did was some years ago, I would think about 10 years ago, before my father passed away, I had to take my father and my mother, recorded them, asking them about both sides, both sides of their history um, is way bigger as they could remember. So on that note, I would say I'm really interested in my history. I'm interested in the black history as well. I'm someone who is really um, into uh, uh, black history, whether blacks who are, who are abroad or in Africa. Yeah, that's one of my passion, actually. 
So for our listeners, what would you, what of Zimbabwe's history would you like listeners to be aware of? Or if people are wanting to know where to start with Zimbabwe's history, where would you tell them to look first, in your opinion? Yeah, well, if you don't know where Zimbabwe is, uh, if it's a country or if it's a, um, it's a continent, I would say Zimbabwe is, um, is uh, the second country from uh, this from from the southern hemisphere that is in Africa you go South Africa and then you go Zimbabwe so it's next to South Africa down there in the southern hemisphere and Zimbabwe attained its independence in 1980 that's when Bob Marley came to Zimbabwe that's how we really came to know of Bob Marley and that's how we influenced most Zimbabweans of my generation there's not one person of my age group who doesn't know who Bob Marley is and uh, he came to uh, celebrate with us it was independence celebration in 1980. And um, uh, before then, it was under um, a white minority regime, um, under Ian Smith. And most of people of my age group were born during that time, which was just an extension of the apartheid regime in South Africa. It was just the same thing in, in, in Rhodesia then. And then in 1980s, I said, we attained our independence and with our president, Robert Mugabe, at first he was a he was a good leader, but then turned out to be one of the um, not so good leaders in the world. He turned out to be a dictator later on. So we've had our struggles, especially when it comes to the economy. Things haven't really moved since the 80s. And we really hope we'd have one sensible leader at some point who could uh, turn the country around. And again, for someone that knows nothing about Zimbabwe, what are the three things that you would like them to know about Zimbabwe? So it might be about the food, it might be the culture, the favourite music there. What what three things would you like them to know about Zimbabwe? Yeah, Zimbabwe, uh, I would say, I would start with the weather. It's really good. I mean, I know some people used to call it um, well, New England, some parts of Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe are called New England, because when the whites came over there, they likened it to England, but then England with good sunshine where it's warm and lovely and nice. We've got uh, Victoria Falls, which is, I would say, the well, the biggest falls in the world. We've got our own ruins, apparently. You probably don't, not ruins, but pyramids, if you don't know. Zimbabwe, the name itself, Zimbabwe, comes from House of Stone. What Zimbabwe means is Zimbabwe, in my language, in Shona, it's a, it's a stone. Zimba is a house. So it basically translates into house of stone. That's where the name Zimbabwe comes from. And um, also, apart from the weather and apart from uh, the falls, we've got um, game reserves, just like uh, you've got the Serengeti in Tanzania and Kenya. We've got um, uh, nice views. So the weather is perfect. The, we've got uh, game parks, we've got the falls, we've got uh, um, our own pyramids. Okay, and if we go back a little bit to your childhood, can you remember the music that was played in your household when you were growing up? When I was growing up, my brother, my elder brother, was very much into um, black consciousness. So, the only reggae artist actually I remember is Jimmy Cliff because he came to South Africa at some point 
And Bob Marley, I suppose, was banned actually in Zimbabwe, so we didn't know anything about Bob Marley. And um, we grew up listening to the likes of Barry White, Michael Jackson, uh, Diana Rose, Three Degrees, the Commodores, Lionel Rich, and all the stuff. Yeah, that's. And then apart from that, you also got the Zimbabwean uh, music, which was, uh, I mean, I don't know if you, I, I don't think you know the likes of Thomas Mapfumo, Osvam Tukudzi, those were the Zimbabwean artists we grew up listening to. And there were a few more other uh, prominent artists in those days. So you mentioned earlier um, your language. Can you tell us more about the language that you speak in Zimbabwe? Um, in Zimbabwe, we've got two main languages. We've got Shona and Debele. Those are the two main languages that are spoken in the country, as well as English, anyway. That's the official language that's spoken by, I would say, by most people. is a way to communicate between the local languages, Shona and Debele. And um, these two languages, Shona and Debele, are part of what's called Bantu languages. Bantu languages, they, um, we are the Bantu people from... Kenya, Rwanda, going down all the way to South Africa. We are related in a way that when we say Bantu, we mean uh, Bantu self refers to a human being. Muntu, Munu, Ubuntu is, refers to a human being. In my language, a human being is called Muno. So all the languages in the region from uh, Kenya going down all, all the way to South Africa, we refer a human being as Muno, Untu. So that's called Bantu. From there, we've got this. Um, well, I, I would say we are, we are we are under one umbrella called the Bantus of uh, Eastern Southern Africa, and so my language is part of that, and um, it's very much related to a uh, Swahili as well. I think you've heard of Swahili that's spoken in East Africa. It's uh, a Bantu language as well. So yeah, I speak Shona. And it's one of the languages that's spoken in Zimbabwe. Can you tell us more of the traditions that were held in your household when you were growing up? Uh, I can't say with so many traditions. Honestly, I am a Christian, and as, as I was growing up, I grew up under that Christian background. So there weren't that many traditions, if I were to be very honest with you. Okay. Apart from Christmas. Okay. Okay. And what about favorite foods? Foods that, you know, you would come home and you'd smell and you're just like, ah, oh, this is home. This just makes me feel happy. What's a smile on my face? What were your favorite foods growing up? Uh, growing up in Zimbabwe and also actually in most countries that I've just mentioned, all the way from Kenya to South Africa, we've got uh, our staple food is um, in my country called Sadza or in my language called Sadza. It's a uh, Thick cornmeal porridge. I think if you play No Man No Cry somewhere, somewhere there, Bomali sings um, about eating cornmeal porridge. But in our in our culture, the porridge itself is made to be a bit thick, so it's not just porridge as it is. It's a bit thicker than the the, the porridge that you know. And then it's served with uh, meat, vegetables. That's the um, I would say. The staple food for most people in Zimbabwe and also in other countries where they, it comes under different names, like in, in Zambia, they call it in Sima, in South, in um, Kenya, where they call it Ugali, I think so. Yeah, I think it's called Ugali in Kenya. And um, it's, it's very common 
in most southern and eastern African countries. And before we get on to your next selection, can you tell us of any sayings or proverbs that were said to you as a child that you still use to this day or really just resonated with you? Yeah, I mean, there's this proverb in Shona that says, uh, basically translated into English. This is a proverb that is always told to children, especially if they are being mischievous. Um, there is a sorghum. In, in, my, in my country, we've, we've got sweet sorghum. It's more like sugarcane, but it's sweet sorghum. It's, it's consumed just like sugarcane. I, I don't know. You haven't a West Indian background whether you've eaten sugarcane. Have you ever eaten sugarcane? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yep. Yeah. So this one, the sweet sorghum, which is similar to sugarcane. And what the proverb says is, when kids are being mischievous and they are trying to tell uh, their parents things that really, the parents know straight away that um, you see the force or there's nothing new. What the proverb simply says is, um, if I give you an example of sugarcane, we have been there. And uh, apart from, there is another plant that looks like sweet sorghum. That looks like if you were to make it uh, like uh, sugarcane. That looks like sugarcane, but it's not sugarcane. It looks like it's sugarcane, but it's not. So the parents will actually be telling the, the, their children, look here, we've been there, we've tested this this this, um, this plant. It's not sugarcane, so we know everything. So you can't tell us anything. You can't lie to us because we've been there, we've been children as well. Basically, that's what he says. It's always when children are being mischievous and they're being corrected by their parents that they're being warned. We have been there and we know it. Such things don't exist. So don't um, continue telling us lies. Okay. Could you repeat it for us one last time? It says, I love that. Wow, wow, wow. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, (laughs) We are going to move on to your next selection, which is Three Little Birds. insight into your school life in Zimbabwe what were your favorite subjects what did you enjoy give us an insight into what it was like there yeah well uh, I remember when I was in the first grade 
I we were having assembly time, and uh, I wrote a piece of paper and put it in my front in my, my uh, front pocket, front pocket of my shirt. And the teacher came round and pulled the little piece of paper out, and he read a name on it. And there was the name of my favorite radio presenter, and his name was Herbert Chikuse, Chikuse, I think so. And uh, the teacher at first said, "Oh, is this a letter to your girlfriend?" And everyone just giggled, and I, and I was sort of I felt so uneasy. And then I said, "No, no, no, it's for my favorite uh, radio presenter." Um, he actually used to read news on our radio station. And uh, the reason why I wrote that name on a piece of paper is I always thought I want to be like him. One day I want to I want to read news just like him. Well, I never managed to uh, to be a radio presenter, but I did work as a journalist, as a print journalist in Zimbabwe, and uh, I sort of feel like uh, um, I achieved something that I was going to achieve when I was uh, my first year in school and uh, from there I just worked on to achieve my goal to be a journalist and uh, my f- first years in school yes it was really exciting uh, but later on I wasn't that um, I wasn't I wasn't really at some point I wasn't one of the best students but uh, I, I think it just kept changing when I finished primary school I was really amongst the top 10 students in the in my class and later on, when I did my second education, I was a bit naughty, I was a bit mischievous, playful. That's one reason why I wasn't one of the best students. Otherwise, I could have still maintained that position. And later on, I worked, after school, I worked as a journalist. I did write some plays. I won some competitions in Zimbabwe and also in Germany, uh, writing uh, radio and stage plays. And I was an, a local actor in Zimbabwe as well. So how That's did your parents years. feel about... Um, the career path that you wanted to take? Were they happy that you wanted to do, you know, um, radio broadcasting or journalism or did they have something completely different in mind for you? My father in particular, whenever he was drunk, he would say, yeah, you call me Dr. Wilfred. I suppose he wanted me to be a doctor, but no, a medical doctor, I suppose. Um, Although he never told me that uh, I wanted to grow up to be a medical doctor, but uh, I suppose that was... Is in, 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 that was his idea that I should be a medical doctor. Apart from that, I know my parents never really told me that I should be either a teacher or whatever. So when I became a journalist, um, I don't remember anyone ever mentioning anything to me. But my brother, one of my brothers was a journalist, and uh, most of my brothers were writers. So we're sort of like a family of writers. So it wasn't really new in the family that I became a journalist or a writer, because my elder brothers, most of them were writers anyway. Okay, and how did you first start your career in journalism? Um, I actually didn't train um, as a journalist in Zimbabwe. I What I did was, I was just good in writing. And uh, um, one um, publication I was looking for, a journalist, and what they did was they advertised posts in uh, the... Um, in one of the newspapers and I applied for the job and part of the application process was that you had to write a, an article um, regarding certain issues in the country and I did and mine came up top of the list and besides that I did I had done a few articles in a publication that my brother was an editor my brother was working as an editor for a local for a provincial for a provincial newspaper 
So I written a few articles in that um, in that um, publication, and uh, I I didn't have much experience, to be honest with, be honest with you. And I really was shocked that I came top of the list in the country of all the people who applied for the job. And I knew some of the people because they used to work for um, the radio station, or uh, they used to work for the TV station, and some of them were uh, writers in the mainstream uh, newspapers in the country. And that came as a shock to me because I just thought, I, well, I, mean, I won't lose anything if I apply for this job. But when I was called for an interview, I thought, uh, well, let me just go. I still won't lose anything by going there. And I got the job. It was a really big surprise to me when I got the job because it was well, it was a dream job to me at that time. Right, we're going to hear more about your works in journalism, but for now we're going to move on to your next selection, which is Bob Marley Waits in Vain. From the very first time I placed my eyes on you, my heart says follow works in journalism were you most proud of? Um, I have to say that uh, the publication itself was um, a bit, and I won't say a bit, but it was um, against some of the corrupt ways the, the, the government was, uh, the party that was ruling government, that was ruling the country was running um was running the country, I would say. And so we were sort of like a publication that was against the government. And um, from time to time, we had um, the government secret service um, on our back. And um, I know from uh, a few times, some of my colleagues were assaulted or they used to be followed by the secret services. Fortunately, I was never actually involved in... uh, any confrontation with the secret service in Zimbabwe. Is that because of the particular works that they were doing or you were doing? I would say I was just lucky, but I knew that they were always behind us. And um, it was just a question of me not being 
uh, picked on but my colleagues were but i was actually the writers the, actually funny enough the guys who actually picked one were not even writers there are people who are doing some other little things in the um or were not actually directly involved in writing but i was directly involved in writing but i never had really a major issue the secret services and i was actually a bit naughty as well i used to go around actually um starting some um, squabbles with the police because i thought i've got a press card i could do whatever i wanted to do and, and i'll get away with it and did you yeah got away with it actually <laughs> at one point not even once uh, i get crushed into a meeting that uh, the president was um having with the another president of a uh, neighboring country Botswana there was actually a dinner party and I get crushed into that meeting I just walked in and uh, I suspected the Zimbabwean authorities assumed I was part of the Botswana delegation so nobody asked me a question the Botswana delegation assumed as well as part of the Zimbabwean delegation so I just walked into the uh, into the um into the meeting I had dinner there with one minister and afterwards I just walked out as if uh, I was one of them. And I'd done it before, actually, when I was still in secondary school. I'd get crashed into another meeting and I'd managed to get away with it. So I was, I was sort of like, um, I looked at myself as someone who could get crashed into any meeting and no one would notice it. Wow. So no one suspected you at all? No one asked me a question. And uh, when I was in secondary school, I, I said I'd done it before. I used to I used to be an actor when I was um, in my secondary when I was in secondary school and uh, one time we were supposed to um, present a play at um, a function where with some government ministers and I was late for that meeting so what I did was I walked into a, a policeman and I wanted to ask him if I could. Uh, um, if I could be escorted in since I was late. And then someone, a stupid person, an official of the party, came around to me and said, oh, are you a member of the uh, youth uh, brigade or something so, something like that? I don't remember what he said. He asked me if I was the chairman of the youth branch or somebody, if I was. And I thought, yeah, I'm late. Let me just say yes. So I said, yes, I am. So this guy took me, handed me over to a policeman who had a dog and asked the policeman to walked me to where all the dignitaries were sitting. And halfway I was laughing and I thought, yeah, if I get there and no one knows me, what am I going to do? So I lied to the policeman that I wanted to go to the toilet. And the policeman somewhere halfway in the stadium uh, let me off. So um, I just walked away and I was laughing. I'm telling you that day I thought I, I would be in trouble if I, if I ended up being uh, taken to where all the ministers and everyone was sitting. Wow, wow, wow. So in your opinion, what would you say or who were your who were the journalists that you'd like to big up or the organizations in Zimbabwe that you would like to big up in terms of the the news that they report on? He was actually one of the first journalists who challenged the government, who published a list of government officials who were corrupt in the early 80s. And his name was Jeff Nyarota. And it was from him that most Zimbabwean journalists got the courage to start challenging the government. Apparently, he used to work for a government-owned newspaper, but even then, he managed to use that publication to 
published a list of all corrupt uh, ministers. And he was in in in, in terms of um, the top journalists in the country. I would rate him as uh, one of the best journalists who came out of the country. Okay, so we're going to move on to your next selection, which is Bob Marley, Stir It Up. in journalism can you elaborate on the story from that to public relations your writing works and then how that evolved into farming in the uk yeah yeah at some point i did work as a public relations officer and then um actually that was just before i became a journalist and then it, uh, i then worked as a journalist just before moving on to the moving um over to the uk that was in 1991. Um, and I really enjoyed working in journalism, but apart from the fact that uh, um, our relationship with the government was not that good. But for me, it was a personal achievement because this is something that I always dreamt I wanted to be. And I managed to do exactly what I wanted to, 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 to be. And um, I was really happy until I moved over to the UK and I had to start all over again. Why did you choose to move over to the UK? My brother had moved over to the UK. One of my brothers had moved over to the UK uh, a few years before I did. So I thought I was sort of like tired working in Zimbabwe. I didn't even work for a long time as a journalist. It was less than two years. But uh, because of the relationship between the government and journalists, you, you just knew at some point you were going to be in trouble. Actually, my brother also used to work for it a government-owned uh, publication, and um, a few times he was locked up. And for me, I used to work for an NGO. The publication I used to work for was run by an NGO, and it was very obvious if I continued working in Zimbabwe, I would have been locked up. Locked up, and It was just a matter of time, really. So, yeah, I got fed up, and I thought, let me follow my brother who was in the UK. I came over to the UK thinking, well, if I like it, I would say, if not, I'll probably move on to another country, maybe move on to the USA or another country. But then when I moved over to the UK, I realized I didn't have much options. Actually, when I, the very first month, the very first few months, it was so cold because I came on the first of, no, on the second of uh, October. And uh, before long, we're in winter. And that, that year, I really, 
I never enjoyed my stay in the country. I actually thought if I didn't resigned from my job in Zimbabwe, I would have gone back to the, I would have gone back to my job because it was cold and nothing to do. And my first job in the country, I was working as a as a as a paper boy. I was from being a writer. I went on to deliver some newspapers, free newspapers around. It was cold. That was in winter. The man was yeah. It was very little in Zimbabwe. I had a comfortable job. I was earning a good. Uh, um, uh, I had a very good job, a very good salary. I came over here, and it couldn't be any worse than what I was doing. So I didn't enjoy it at all. So my start in the country was really, really bad. So how did you work your way into farming then? Tell us of the journey from um, delivering yeah, papers was, into yeah, farming. Yeah, it, it was a long journey. Like I said in the beginning that I did all sorts of jobs. I worked uh, in factories. I, at some point, um, uh, sweeping streets, um, traffic warden, call centre, I uh, worked as a chef. I, well, I can't even list all the jobs I've done, except I haven't done anything illegal. Uh, and then from there, I really got fed up. I was really fed up. I thought, no, I can't continue working. In, uh, I can't continue in, in formal employment. I go to that point where I just, just couldn't continue. And at the same time, when I was in Zimbabwe, we used to eat uh, maize which you probably don't know in this country. It's more like sweet corn, but it's not as sweet as sweet corn. It's chewy. It's um, it's not sweet either. Um, although when you look at maize, it looks like sweet corn, but it's not sweet corn. So we used to eat maize when I was in Zimbabwe, and that's white maize in particular. There's yellow maize, there's white maize, there's purple, blue, whatever, but we used to eat white maize in Zimbabwe. So when I came over to the UK, it wasn't available. And I kept dreaming that one day I'll bump into someone selling white maize and um, it never happened. And I thought maybe I could come across even a farmer growing white maize, but it just wasn't so. It, was, it wasn't actually known in the country. So I came to a point of thinking, well, why not start growing white maize myself in my back garden just for myself? Because I wanted to eat maize. My, uh, my, my wife and I, we grew up eating white maize in Zimbabwe and he wanted to continue eating white maize in this country. So that's how I then started experimenting to grow white maize in my back garden. That was in Tottenham, North London, where I used to live. It took me years, really, five, six years experimenting to grow white maize in my background, in my back garden. And um, I remember the early days, our neighbor's son would actually, uh, the, our neighbor's sons would kick their balls into our back garden and after a while, they'll come around and say, oh, please, can we pick our ball in our forest, in your forest? Because we had some plants in the big garden. It, it happened to actually be a long, a big garden, and uh, uh, it was all full of maize. And when the boys kick the ball into the big garden, to them it was like a forest. So they'll come around and say, can you pick our ball that is landed in your forest? And I asked them to go around and pick the ball. And so um, every year, I was experimenting to grow different varieties of maize until I came to a point where I thought I'd be, uh, I had enough knowledge to grow white maize in the UK. Although, when I started growing white maize, I asked the maize association, the, actually I called the president of the maize association uh, in the country, 
And he was very rude to me. He said, uh, you're wasting my time. Uh, you can't grow white maize in the country. It's more of a tropical crop. It can only be grown in the tropics. It just won't grow to maturity in the UK. And uh, he told me that I was just wasting his time and wasting my time. And then he just hung up on me. So um, after he hung up on me, I just, I was sort of like demoralized. I thought, yeah, well, this is the end of my dream. Can't do it because this guy told me that it's not possible. But after a while, I thought, well, let me just prove this guy wrong. Let me do it. Since he said I can't do it, let me try, let me prove him wrong by doing it. That's one of the reasons why, actually, apart from the fact that I was missing white maize, I also wanted to prove this guy wrong. So that's when I then started doing these experiments. And after a while, when I realized I could do it, I started looking for land, which wasn't easy at all. It was extremely difficult because the first, the first days I used to drive around the countryside, knocking on some white farmers' doors, um, and asking them if they had a bit of land to rent so I could grow my white maize. No one ever took me serious. I think they all thought I was up to no good because they, they never seen anyone black or white knocking on their doors. Someone a stranger walking on you, knocking on your door, you open the door and then there's someone there saying, oh, do you have uh, 10 acres or 5 acres of land I want to rent so I can grow white maize? Never happened. They'd never seen anyone doing that before and it just didn't work and uh, so when I discovered it wasn't working I decided to uh, put an advert in one of the newspapers it was a free newspaper nothing to do with agriculture they used to advertise cars and furniture and all sorts of things put an advert in that newspaper uh, looking for land to grow white maize and uh, there happened to have been one journalist who used to, who used to work for a national newspaper and uh, he used to specialize in uh, looking at uh, adverts or stories that don't seem to make sense in the eyes of the public. Here there was uh, David Mwanaka. The name itself, surely it's not English, it's not British. He is looking for land to grow white maize. He didn't know what white maize was. So the connection between David Mwanaka, white maize, and farming simply didn't make sense to him. And he, I, I don't think it would have made sense to anyone. So he called me and said, okay, right, you want to grow white maize. What is white maize? So I explained to him what white maize was. And he said, well, and uh, what's your background? I told him my background. And then he had an article in the um, Guardian newspaper. And from that article, I got a few responses in Milton Keynes, in London, and uh, as far as Stonehenge. Uh, a few farmers got in touch with me, saying they had a bit of land available so I could grow my white maize. And um, so I ended up settling in North London, in Enfield, where I started off on a 10-acre piece of um, land. That's when we started farming white maize on that piece of land, 10-acre piece of land. And really, that was the beginning of my um, white maize farming in the UK. So the land that you, the 10 acres that you originally started with, was that, um, were you able to buy that or was it leased? How did that come about? No, no, uh, we were leasing from a college called Kapol Manor. Unfortunately, that piece of land is now the training ground for Tottenham Hotspurs. It was bought by Tottenham Hotspurs a few years later and it's now their training ground. But that's exactly where our dream of growing white maize in the UK started. Wow. 
And did you have any previous experience of farming before or was this the, your first, you know, the first time? I had a bit of, um, yeah, I had a bit of experience in farming in Zimbabwe. Uh, my farmer actually was a very innovative farmer. Yes, I would say the he was the first farmer in the country to um, to breed cabbage seeds. Um, you suppose you are to walk into any um, seed merchant in this country or anywhere where they sell seed or seedlings, you would sell you, you would buy cabbage seeds or seedlings, but someone somewhere would have uh, bred the seed that you are actually using. So my father, that was what my father. Uh, did in Zimbabwe and he was the first person to do that in Zimbabwe and I also was responsible for growing a lot of at our house with lots of peach trees probably more than a thousand peach trees and I was responsible for planting most of them and a few other trees as well and uh, fruit trees around our house so basically that's the experience that I had and we used to, I used to grow rather my family used to grow potatoes um yeah we used to grow quite a lot of potatoes but i never had the opportunity to grow maize myself it is something that i always thought i missed as i was growing up was most young men of my age we used to grow uh, we, with the, the whole family used to grow maize but we ended up concentrating on growing uh potatoes rather than maize and i missed that bit so to me apart from missing eating white maize i also missed growing white maize so when your father found out that you were farming, was he really excited? Was he really happy about it? What was his he, reaction? He was, really, he was really excited. Yeah, of course, he was really happy about it. Unfortunately, he never managed to come to the UK. My mother did, but my father never managed to come to the UK. And I remember showing him some videos of my family in the UK. And he used to say, no, I want to go. I want to uh, go to the UK and grow some tomatoes there, a piece of land that I can see on the video. I think tomatoes will grow very well there. Or grow some potatoes there. Uh, yeah, he was really excited that um, I took him something that was useful from him because he was a farmer and he was good at what he was doing. And so, yeah, I think that really brought some um, happiness into his into his life, knowing that his son was doing something that he grew up doing as well. Well, it was definitely in your blood. Um, but what what would you say in the early days when you got your 10 acres of land, what was the most difficult aspects that you found in the, the early days of your farming career in the yeah, UK? The, the early days, yeah. Um, right, I got the 10 acres, right? And I'm thinking, yeah, here's my dream. I have achieved my dream again. First, I achieved my dream by becoming a, a journalist in Zimbabwe. Now I come to the UK. I worked uh, doing all sorts of jobs, but now I've left this. I'm now self-employed. I have 10 acres of land to grow white maize, and I've done it. And when, the, when, when, when we had our first crop, when we were, it was time to harvest our first crop, I was so excited about it. But then there was another challenge. I couldn't sell the maize because no one in the country knew that uh, there was white maize in the country. So I had a crop that had matured, but uh, I know where to take the crop to. And then uh, wherever I would go, people would say, no, you can't be serious, you can't grow white maize in the country. Uh, and the, the one thing that I didn't mention to you about white maize, it's got a life, a share of life of just one day. You pick white maize today, you're better off cooking it or boiling it or, or, or roasting it on the same day. After a day or two, it turns into a lump of starch, it's tasteless. 
So it's difficult to import white maize from other countries because by the time it gets into the country, it doesn't taste as much as it's supposed to. And then whenever I would go around telling people I'm selling white maize, the assumption was I was getting from somewhere either than the fact that I was actually growing in the UK. So my first days of trying to sell white maize in the country were really um, disheartening. Uh, because I remember I drove to Tottenham. I was driving my Ford Mondeo. I loaded the boot of my Ford Mondeo and I drove to Tottenham and I thought I'm going to have... I, I, I drove around to a church that was... Um, I think the, most people in that church were from Congo, DRC. So I thought everyone's going to uh, swamp me and, bum, and buy the white maize. And nobody did. So I left to that church with all my maize in the boot of my Ford Mondeo. No one had bought, not even one dozen. And that made me to think, wow, could I have made a mistake here? I've got the crop and no one wants it. So I just started thinking of other ways of selling my crop. And it did happen at that very moment. There was a free newspaper that was run by some Zimbabweans in the country. So I put some adverts in, the, in that free publication and they also published a story that I was growing white maize and it was available now uh, for the first time in the UK. And that's how I started having uh, customers coming to buy from us. And that's how really we started growing the business. And who were your initial customers? Were they shops? Were they individual people? Who were they? Yeah, my first customers were individual people, mostly from Zimbabwe. But I was also... Um, uh, selling to a few shops, most of them were run by Zimbabweans, and some a, a few from um, people from East Africa, like Kenya, Uganda. So before we move on to your next election, we're going to talk obviously more about the different crops and and what you went through through your farming career. Um, but can you tell us, uh, did you experience any discrimination? As a farmer, the funny thing about it is, uh, I can't, I don't recall having received any discrimination from farmers, but from people who walk around in the countryside, we have nothing to do with farm farming. Those are the worst people I've come across in the country, and uh, yeah, well, I've had instances where, where one occasion where um, we were renting a field in Leicester, and. Uh, some locals called the police three times in a week. They called the police on us three times in a week, saying that they were, they'd seen some people stealing white, stealing corn from a field because they'd never seen blacks working in a field. So the moment they saw us, they called the police, oh, we've got someone stealing corn in, in this field. The police would come around, um, ask us questions, go away. Following day, we had another call from locals. We've seen someone stealing corn. The police will come around and interrupt three times in the space of one week. And we've got people walk around in the countryside. At times we greet someone. I mean, it's difficult for someone just to walk past you and you don't even say a word to them. So in general, we just greet everyone. Hi, how are you? But sometimes we've got people who you, you can say hi to them and they just walk past you like you don't exist. That is if... Well, that's one group. One group simply don't recognize it exists. And then there's the other group that would uh, call names or, uh, or maybe shout uh, racist abuse at you. And I've uh, got another group again that still say, oh, I'm going to call the police for you because you're stealing. I mean, I mentioned something like two weeks ago. Uh, we still had someone who just walked past us and said, what are we 
us, that's what we're doing. And he said, uh, well, to them, we're still important. Never seen us there. And he was going to call the police, although we never we never saw the police. He didn't call the police. But we've had so many instances. Or someone could just say, they see you work, working working in a field and say, oh, yeah. Um, or yeah, we could just be working in your field. Working in your field, sorry. And they said, no, you know what? The foot footpath is not there. It's somewhere they direct you. They direct you to a footpath because they see you walking in a field, and the assumption is you're not supposed to be walking work, walking there. You're supposed to be in a uh, uh, walking in a uh, in a footpath. But maybe if if it was a white person, the assumption is oh yeah, well that's the farmer. He's supposed to be there. That's okay. But because you're black, you're out of place. You're not supposed to be there. If at all you're supposed to be here, you're supposed to be walking on a road or a footpath somewhere, somewhere. So they always direct you to a footpath. You're not supposed to be there, but you're supposed to be over there. That's where the footpath is, or that's where the road is, not where you are. So many times that has happened, and um, we sort of like get used to it. But it's not from farmers. Otherwise, I won't be there. Farmers are very, very, very friendly, very understanding. And have you told any of the farmers um, that you know of the experiences you've had that you've just explained to us? Actually, two weeks ago, we actually called the this farmer whom we were renting um, something like more than 100 acres from. And he actually drove around, but by the time he got there, the the guy who, who, who had said he was going to call the police had gone, so he didn't see him. So, yeah, for me, actually, it was my son who had to call him, but for me, I, I don't even bother wasting my time. It's, it happens so often, and I'm used to it, so I don't bother wasting my time calling him or calling anyone, really. Okay. We're going to move on to your next selection, which is Bob Marley, No Woman, No Cry. your main crop that you've already mentioned can you tell us about some of the other exotic crops that you grow 
Yeah, I also grow some exotic crops. Actually, I special. I would say I specialize in growing exotic crops. One of the very exotic crop that we grow, you would have to Google that one because I am 100% sure you don't know it. It's called jelly melon or um, horn melon. It's got it's a small melon that's got some horns. If you just touch just like that, yeah, it will prickle you. It's um, mostly grown in Southern Africa and a bit in uh, Eastern Africa as well. Um, it tastes a bit like something between a pineapple and a banana. That's what people say. And but when it's when it, when it's still tender, when it's still green, it's it tastes more like a cucumber. It's in the cucumber family. But when it turns yellowish or when it ripens, that's when it turns in between. It tastes in between a um, uh, banana and um, pineapple. Um, that's one of the um crops that we grow we also grow um, a white sweet corn most of you don't know it but it's very popular in the usa in canada and uh, in some parts of the world it's actually very sweet it's tender and we actually used to sell that in harrods and in sainsbury's that's white sweet corn and we grow kale mustard leaves um yeah and some more other exotic crops um and we've also experimented in growing other crops like uh, uh, groundnuts or peanuts. Um, trying to think of something else. Yeah, and we are actually in the process of experimenting growing lots of other new vegetables that are not locally grown in the UK or not known in the UK, in the country, but are actually consumed in the country. Another one, we another crop that we grow is always baby corn. We actually were the first farmer to start growing baby corn not apparently what baby corn is is any uh, um, is um, a a little cob that comes out of any corn plant whether sweet corn or maize the um, little plant when it's still tender the little cob when it's still tender that's basically what baby corn is but most farmers or most people don't know that actually you can get you can get baby corn from any maize or sweet corn plant. So most of the baby corn that's eaten in the country or all of it comes from countries like India or Thailand or well, somewhere from either Africa or Asia. Whereas you can actually grow baby corn in the country, but you don't necessarily have to grow it as a crop. You can, or you can take it from either maize or sweet corn when it's, uh, when it's producing Actually, every plant, every maize or sweet corn plant produces two or three cobs. The first cob is what is usually useful as a as corn on the cob or as a, a maize cob. But the second and third, third cob is usually is usually uh, useless. So that cob can actually be turned into into baby corn. That's what we that's what we do as well. So can you tell us of the biggest challenges that you faced growing exotic crops in the UK? The biggest challenge, I mean, needless to say, is the weather. Because as much as you know, the UK doesn't have the, doesn't have the perfect weather in the world. It's either damp or it's rainy, it's never warm enough. So most of the crops that we grow, because they're exotic, you need a lot of heat to grow those crops. To start with maize, Maize needs a lot of heat. So is sweet corn. Uh, pumpkins, you also grow pumpkins. 
the squash for uh, not for Halloween but for human consumption. So all these crops they need a lot of heat to grow in the country. But because UK is not that warm, it's um, it's extremely difficult growing them. Such that in some years you you don't you actually got a failed crop. But usually we've come up, over time we've uh, devised ways and means of growing most of the crops that we grow to maturity. So you got the secret formula, yeah? <laughs> I could say that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that, love that. Um, <laughs> what were you unaware of about UK farming that you wish you'd known? So if, if you could give yourself advice, if you could go back in time and advise yourself on a few things about farming in the UK, what would they be? Yeah, what, what the local farmers actually say is that whatever you do this year, don't repeat next year. Because most likely it doesn't work. And um, but then on the other hand, you cannot afford but repeat what you did last year because then if you don't repeat what you did last year, you probably get it so wrong. So you have to go against the convention, but at the same time, that's what you are supposed to do uh, because then the years are never the same. What the, the weather patterns for this year are different from next year and becomes so difficult for. When it comes to planning, it's uh, it's becomes so difficult. Let's say you're assuming I'm going to start uh, planting on the first of. Let me just give you an example. Every if we think I'm going to start on the first of May to start planting my uh, maize or whatever it is, if we plant on the first of May next year, we might have a failed crop, totally failed crop. We might end up with nothing, but it's actually the same date, but uh, because it's a different year, it doesn't work. So it's difficult really to answer that question. But, um, yeah, I've, in a way, learned what the farmers say, that um, don't do what you did last year. So you've got to be really good at adapting to the situation, basically. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, and more so for us who are growing uh, crops that are not uh, traditionally grown in this country. For farmers who grow wheat, um, potatoes, and all the crops that are always grown in the country, it's, it's a lot easier for them because then they actually they do have uh, all the knowledge and uh, literature written about growing wheat, growing potatoes, whatever it is that they want to grow. Yes, for me, it was try and error. I had no literature whatsoever on how to grow white sweet corn or white maize in the country. I, it, I, I was the pioneer in that area, so it was extremely difficult. It was easy to fail than to uh, get a, a crop. Mm-hmm. We're going to play your next selection, which is Rocket Baby by Bob Marley. Baby, baby, we've got a day.
for any aspiring farmers that might be listening right now, can you give us the initial startup costs involved in crop farming? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's actually it's one of those questions that you can't um, actually um, advise anyone. Reason being that when I started, I had two hundred pounds in my bank account. That's what we started with. And when we started, we didn't need that much money actually. Bonus with you because the the uh, the college that we were renting the land from said, oh, "Okay, you pay us when you harvest your crop." And uh, the guys also uh, helped us in plowing the fields and preparing the land. Also said, "Okay, you pay us when you start um, harvesting your crop." So I could have just started with um, almost nothing. And I got away with it the first year because we didn't need even to apply any fertilizer or anything. It was just the seed that I actually got for free. So I didn't need anything that very, very year. But uh, now, yeah, well, the cost has gone so, so, so much. Um, but we do, uh, uh, we did pump out tens of thousands of pounds every year. Um, whereas compared to the first year, it was all free. And it depends as well which crop you want to grow. And what I can only say to to uh, farmers from the ethnic minority background is that, uh, and we all come from different backgrounds. Maybe you come from Jamaica. Maybe there were some uh, crops that you remember your parents or your grandma used to grow in Jamaica and probably want to try them in this country. It's possible. It's very possible. Can I just start growing something that was uh, that used to be grown in Jamaica, but no one has attempted it. And because no one has attempted growing, it doesn't mean that it doesn't grow. You need to experiment. You need to take time to do trials and to see if you can grow that crop in this country. It's not always that you can, but in some cases you can. Just like in my case, I discovered that I could grow white maize in the country, though I was told I couldn't do it. Do you know of any organisations that may be, uh, may be able to offer support for aspiring black farmers? I don't know, and I don't think it does exist because, uh, okay. yeah, okay. it's not, um, yeah, yeah, it's a very, um, well, it's, it's, it, even even now, there, lots of people don't know even that there are black farmers in the country. Right, right. So with that in mind, um, could you give five pieces of advice for new farmers that they should think about before they start to get into this? You know, things that they might um, might not have occurred to them, things that they should have in place, things yeah, that you maybe yeah, didn't yeah. know when you started. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to go into farming, you should have a passion for whatever it is that you want to do. But that also uh, translates to any business. If you want to start any business, you need to have a passion for whatever you're doing. But then farming is, is a bit different from... Um, other businesses. Farming in this country in particular is seasonal. If you try something, it doesn't work this year. You can't try again in some like two or three months. You've got to try it next year. So if you try to grow something and fail this year, you've got to wait until next year. And if it fails, you have to wait again until the following year. So you can't... Um, yeah, well... It's, it's so it's so difficult because the I mean there's there's very high, high percentage of you failing and then failing again next year, especially when you want to grow tropical fruits, uh, tropical crops, sorry. And then because if you you because if you fail this year, it will it will take you another year to try growing the same crop again. It's um, 
it's a bit challenging and it can be very costly as well. And at the same time, you need to do market research for your your crop, the crop that you, have, you want to grow. Is it, um, do you have people eat that crop in this country? Is it something that's, that can be grown commercially in this country? And also you have to look at the UK. The UK is different from other countries in the world. It's a, it's a piece of land that stretches from uh, down south to Scotland. It's not every crop that can be grown, let's say in Southampton or down there, that can also be grown in Scotland. There's sort of like dividing line in the UK where you can't grow some crops, certain crops, and as you go further up there. So it's not a question of well, someone is growing, um, let's say, maize in uh, Southampton, India, and Scotland, and you think, oh, I can also grow maize in, in Scotland because I'm in the UK. It doesn't work like that. It's a different country altogether. And uh, I'm trying to think of, um, oh, but there's so many other um, areas I could advise you on. Um, and also whether it's something that you dream you would actually earn a living by being a farmer in the country, because farming is very challenging. You've got to have a thick skin to be a farmer in this country, because it's uh, really challenging for the uh, for the traditional farmers in this country. And then you are someone who doesn't know much about farming in the country and you are new into the field and you want to try something new, the success rate, success rate is very small. So you've got to be prepared to tackle the, uh, what, the beast by its horn. So you must have a lot of determination, uh, most definitely. Can you give us an insight into where you are now with your farming and where your crops have been sold, where they're currently sold and where people can get hold of them? Yeah, yeah. Well, apparently at the moment we've just come to the end of our season. We are in November now and our season has just come to an end. But we are... As we stand, we are now farming more than 150 acres, and um, our main crop is maize, although we also grow other crops, like uh, I mentioned, sweet corn, uh, that's why sweet corn, uh, pumpkins, and lots of other exotic crops. And our customers um, are all over the country. Actually, we do deliver right across the UK, UK mainland, all the way from, I would say, Southampton to Scotland, and we also do have two shops, one in London, one in West Midlands in uh, Warsaw. But we do deliver on a daily basis right across the UK. And you've got an online service as well. Apart from um, our vegetables, we do have butchers as well, where we do um, sell meat and, other, uh, and some groceries. And we do have an online service where people can buy our, our produce uh, and we do use DPD to deliver the produce right across the UK. So obviously we'll put those links in the description for the listeners, but can you tell us where we can find those online stores and, and you know, purchase and support your works? Yep. Um, if you go online, you can go on www.manakafreshfarmfoods. That's for uh, online purchases. And in London, our shop is uh, along Hartford Road in Enfield. That's North London. We've got number number 744 Hartford Road, Enfield, EN36PR. And we, we do have a shop in Warsaw. That's 19 to 20 Vicarage Place, 
WS13NA. So far, that's what we have. But we hope in the coming year we would expand to um, some other parts of the UK. Well, thank you so much for sharing your journey, your story. I know it will uplift and empower so many people. Oh, thank you very much. You're more than welcome. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Reggae Uprising podcast wherever you are listening to it. Like I said earlier, if you want to get in touch with me to feature in a future episode or would like to share your thoughts on Reggae Uprising podcast, a specific episode, or if you would like to collaborate with me, all you need to do is go to daniel.co.uk. So that's D-A-N-I-E-A-L.co.uk. And of course, this week's episode, I will leave all of those links in the description for you. So please show your support for this week's guests' works. You know, buy their products, support the shops. This is what this podcast is all about. Make sure you're back here next Wednesday for a fresh and new episode. I'm going to leave you with the sounds of Bob Marley, One Love. Until then, and as always, blessed love. Young.